I do thank John for giving me this opportunity to stand up and get back in the saddle a little bit. Uh, it's been several months, and uh, I uh, opportunity. I uh, thank you for your church, this church, our church, for welf- welcoming us, I, my family, and um, you just you just don't know what a blessing it is to know that you love God and his word and that you continue steadfastly in the doctrine of the apostles and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers as Acts chapter 2 tells us. That's the core ministry of the church and um, we're thankful that that's so important to you. That's one of the things that drew us here and your just obvious love and uh, fellowship. So thank you. My text this morning, our text, is from Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, please, um, you can open it there. But my custom is to have you stand as I read the Scripture. So if you are able, if you could stand with me uh, while I read uh, Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 35 through 45. Then James and John... Zebedee came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your glory. But you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, and so Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began greatly displeased with James and John. Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the true and the living God. May those who have ears to hear, hear. Thank you. You may be seated. Is your Christianity about what God should do for you or what you should do for God? Both Scripture and church history reveal That even God's people far too often seek their glory rather than His. Now we expect worldly people to magnify themselves over God. We see that all the time, every day. And we ourselves as Christians used to do that. And even sometimes, as I have indicated, still do. But we, even as Christians, struggle between selfishness and selflessness. 
But as one theologian said, whenever we seek our own glory, we do so at the expense of the glory of God. The Gospel of Mark presents our Lord Jesus Christ as the consummate servant of God. The one who only and always desired to glorify the Heavenly Father by doing His will. And so from the beginning of His public ministry, our Lord Jesus is identified as the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. His loving obedience to God in all things was completely selfless, even to the point of the death of the cross. In fact, verse 45 of chapter 10 can be considered the thesis of Mark's gospel. The gospel concerning Christ as the fulfillment of Isaiah's suffering servant prophecy, which you find in Isaiah 52 and 53. God the Son became a man to do the Heavenly Father's will. And He did that, no matter the personal cost. As Isaiah 53.11 explains, Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied by His knowledge, that is, His knowledge of what righteousness requires. Shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Christ understood fully that the Father's plan of redemption would cost him everything, and Christ gave his all. And so Mark calls us all to repent of sin, to believe this gospel of Jesus as our worthy Lord, and to follow him in the work of the kingdom. But all of this requires a childlike humility. And it requires that humility from beginning to end. And so as Mark records Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God and the miracles that verified and illustrated its truths, what we discover is that humility is not something that any of us naturally possesses. As someone has said, if you think you're humble, you probably aren't. We don't possess a natural humility. Rather, it's the result of a changed heart. The work of the Spirit of God in the new birth, the regeneration that we talk about so often. We must be born from above in order to be the humble children of God. And although we struggle with the sin that still resides in our flesh as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7, the true Christian's new nature is essentially humble. And this humility not only accompanies our will to repent of sin and to trust in Christ for the righteousness we need to enter life, but it motivates our service to God. And it motivates our service to God alongside other Christians. It's the same humility of heart that Jesus our Lord so beautifully demonstrated all the way to the cross of Calvary, even as he calls his disciples to the same humble service. And so Mark builds on this theme from the opening verses of his narrative here in this gospel. 
And since chapter 8, Jesus has already spoken three times about his coming death and resurrection. That's the pinnacle of his earthly service. Each instance describes his suffering in more detail. And each time he further calls us to humble Christian ministry. And so the passage before us is his third appeal. To deny ourselves. Follow him on the path that ultimately leads with God being glorified. And this says Jesus is the humble path. It is the humble path which requires us to deny self-seeking, to deny self-confidence, to deny self-promotion. Our text comes on the heels of Jesus' third prediction of his approaching passion, beginning in chapter 11, that which we often call the Passion Week. And while the apostles had been focused on how they might be first In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus was concerned only with carrying out the Father's redemptive purpose so that there might be human beings in that kingdom. And with his eye on the cross, our Lord Jesus persistently rebukes the apostles for their pursuit of their own glory. And he reminds them of their calling to follow him in the gospel ministry. And really, beginning in chapter 4, Jesus begins to, teach, begins to teach them what it means to serve. What it means to serve in the kingdom. What is this service or ministry that we have as his followers? The Son would soon atone for sin. He would rise again. He would ascend to heaven to return to the Father's right hand. And the disciples needed to understand, as we need to understand, what is our mission of establishing His church in the truth and of walking in that truth and in being ambassadors of that truth to a lost and a dying world. Despite His previous teaching, the twelve The apostles were still only concerned with their personal elevation. And what they were convinced was the soon coming kingdom of Christ on the earth in all of its glory. They wanted their place. Jesus was the king and they wanted to be near him. After all, Jesus chose them specifically, did he not? They were his most notable representatives. And in their minds, that meant they were more special than the other disciples, right? Sometimes we think that about ourselves, don't we? (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe since I'm a preacher, maybe since I've been a pastor, I'm maybe a little more special than other disciples. No. I think the longer you may have preached or been a pastor, you realize you're probably the chief among the sinners that you minister to. In their minds, however, as in ours sometimes, we think we are great. And though the Lord's words concerning his death troubled the apostles, chapter 8, verse 32, chapter 9, verse 32, they express that, that trouble of their own hearts. Nonetheless, pride motivated them. Jesus had to address their need for loving humility 
And he did that, you'll remember, even in the upper room, John chapter 13. What did he have to do? Stand up and wash the disciples' feet and tell them, as I have done to you, so you do to one another. You must be loving. You must be humble. You must serve. And what should have been a will to serve with a childlike humility here in the apostles and certainly in other disciples as well, it had given way to a childish arrogance, a childish self-seeking. If you've been a parent, and if you've been a parent long enough to see small children grow just a little, you see that childish self-seeking even at an early age. Sadly, it doesn't go away. We don't outgrow that. This is kind of the way I picture the disciples, the apostles around Jesus. And Jesus is that patient but sometimes frustrated parent. How many times do I have to tell you? And we're told that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they make the boldest move yet for prominence. While the brothers were noted for their bold personalities, you'll remember when Jesus chose them, it tells us back in chapter 3, verse 17, that he gave them the nickname Boanerges, if I pronounce that correctly. Sons of thunder, bold men, a lot like Peter. They spoke their mind. But Matthew chapter 20, the corresponding passage in that synoptic gospel, verses 20 and 21, informs us that it was their mother who also came along to gain some favor with Jesus, it is possible that she was actually Jesus' aunt, the mother of Jesus, or the sister of Jesus' mother. The scriptures tell us that uh, her name was Salome, and uh, when we piece that together, we look at John nineteen twenty-five. we see that Jesus' sister, his mother's sister was there at the cross also, and we don't know for certain, but maybe... She was Jesus' aunt. Maybe James and John were Jesus' cousins. And we piece together these two accounts, and they tell us that this was a family endeavor to get their Lord and teacher, as we read here, to do whatever they asked of him. Mark simply cuts to the chase, as Mark does, and he just says the self-seeking is in the heart of the brothers. But maybe... These bold brothers were just a little bit of mama's boys. I'm not sure. Mom, we think you might be Jesus' favorite aunt. Can you just maybe come in front of us? Maybe she said these words. Maybe she asked the question. Maybe they asked the question. Maybe she asked it first. We don't know. But Mark says it was the pride in their heart. The self-seeking of their heart. And so when Jesus gives them an audience to make their request, they had the audacity to ask for the highest places of honor. Highest in the kingdom. On his right hand, on his left, in his glory. I mean, they rightly saw Jesus as the Messiah. You are the king of Israel. And we want to be right next to you. But that's really just a muted way of saying, 
our goal is personal glory, right? You ever find yourself talking to God in prayer and uh, you elevate yourself just a little? You kind of sound like James and John. You're praying for things that elevate you. You're praying for your your moving forward and not necessarily for your ministry to others. Jesus had repeatedly modeled and taught self-denial. If you have your Bible, you can look with me back at chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Let me just read to you what it says there. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but when he turned around, he looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Arrogant self-seeking, however, is born out of prideful self-confidence and so our Lord Jesus addresses that now James and John envision great things for themselves but the Lord quickly says you don't know what you're asking you don't know what you're asking makes you want to pause just a little bit when you're praying make sure you know what you're asking for make sure it's within the will of God You've heard people say, be careful what you pray for, you might just get it. And if it's the wrong thing and you're persistent about it, as we've been discussing in Sunday school class, the Lord might just let you go through that to teach you that's not the best thing. Arrogant self-seeking is born out of prideful self-confidence. It's a self-confidence that leads us to ask for things we shouldn't. Or things we might not fully understand that we're not prepared for. If you're thinking that following me, says Jesus, is all about your greatness, well, then you've just missed the point entirely. And so Jesus asks a heart-probing question that emphasizes what every child of God can expect from their union with Christ. Our union with the Lord as we follow him through this world, as we follow him through this world into heaven. And it deals with two aspects of that union. Jesus mentions the cup. Which refers to his suffering. And the baptism. Which refers to death. Not water baptism per se. He's speaking of death. Jesus wanted them to express their willingness to suffer. To suffer and to die for his sake. And the kingdom gospel he Reminds them of that back in verse 28. 
through 31 of this chapter. He wants them to express that willingness to die for his sake. But even as he suffered and died to provide righteousness for them to enter the kingdom and to serve. We have, we have no way to serve unless we are in the kingdom. There has to be a way for us as sinners to be made right with God, to be reconciled to Him, that we may even be His children and be adopted and enter into the kingdom of God and have a place to do His will. And to do that will from the heart and to do that will in a way that's pleasing to Him. But they had no real comprehension of what that meant. They simply saw their allegiance to the death which they pledged. All of them pledged. Oh, we're willing to die for you. We're willing to die with you. But they saw that as their own path to glory. We're able, they said. The cup Jesus drank, the baptism with which he was baptized, were respectively the wrath and the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. And Jesus bears that for us on the cross, doesn't he? Yes, praise the Lord. And he spoke of them both as his baptism. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. And by faith, we are told that we enter into his suffering and into his death as if it were our own. And his righteousness and his resurrection life, they are credited to us as if they are our own. Because why? We are in Christ. We are united with him. So closely in the mind of God that his righteousness becomes ours. His life becomes ours. And our sin and our death became his on the cross. And there God poured out his wrath on the Son. Like James and John, we will drink and have drunk. And are baptized with Christ in that way. As Jesus says in verse 39. But our union with Christ, listen, does not mean that we have the privilege of demanding some kind of prominence in the kingdom. Do you follow me? Yes, you're in Christ. Yes, Christ is the glorious king. Yes, the kingdom is glorious. And we have all the rights and privileges as it were of being a child of God in the kingdom. But we cannot come in pride demanding a place here or there. No, that place is given to you. Whatever it may be. However public it may be. However private it may be. Your place of service. Your service to God. Is not for your glory. It is for His. And by God's grace, we are alive to him in union with Christ. And by his grace, we have a place of his choosing in the kingdom. It is the place that has been prepared for us. I presume 
from what Jesus says, someone will be seated at his right hand and seated at his left. We don't know who that is. And so there's no room for self-confidence for the Christian. We must serve, and we serve with utmost confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we even have access to the Father and a place in the kingdom. And we serve with utmost confidence in the Father's sovereign order for the kingdom of heaven. Once self-confidence is out of the picture, then there's no self to promote, is there? One of the great things about being a Christian and, and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord over a number of years is you find yourself less and less appealing, or at least you should. You shouldn't be walking by the mirror every day, grinning and thinking you're something wonderful. At this point, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm thinking, ugh, you again. You, you don't promote yourself. You, you're tired of self. You are, as Paul said, chief among the sinners. You, that's how you view yourself. And it takes time and it's a constant daily thing. But if you keep looking in the scripture and the Bible says of itself that it's like a mirror. It reflects who you are as you see it. It exposes you and it drives you to Christ. Keeps you repentant. Keeps you trusting in Christ. But Without self-confidence there's no self to promote. The reality of that truth may have entered into the thinking of James and John at this point. At least we hope it did. But we're told it hadn't reached the other ten apostles. All they knew was these sons of Zebedee left them out of the loop. And the rest of them began to be indignant at James and John. Or furious with them. Verse 41 they certainly were furious because of the brothers' political maneuvering. I mean, let's face it, this was a political move, right? We, we watch as uh, the election 2020 and all that gets started up in the news and we see people maneuvering politically, right? We get that. This was a political maneuver. But there's nothing here to indicate that there's some kind of righteous indignation on the part of the other disciples for James and John not being humble. Don't think for a moment the others are going, oh, James and John, have you not been listening to what the Lord has been saying? You should be humble. That's not even in their mind. They're mad. Angry. No righteous indignation. and Indignation, but nothing righteous about it. Truth is, if they'd thought about it first, they would have done it. And they would have done it if they thought that their mother had any clout with Jesus. Right? <laughs> so that's why Jesus gathers them for another rebuke. None of them were getting it. This rebuke comes in the form of a contrast between worldly self-promotion and the denial of that God's children should exhibit. Self-denial. The Lord essentially says in verse 42 that the rulers of the Gentiles 
Well, they just do what pagan rulers do. They do what pagan politicians do. Jesus isn't saying that they have no right to exercise authority over their people, but he says that they lord it over them. In other words, they're using it to their advantage, not the advantage of the people that they're supposed to be serving. Not that they don't have some kind of quasi-genuine desire to serve, but that there's as much or more emphasis on how it promotes them, them as it benefits those who are under them. We're told in, in Romans 13, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, that it's their God-ordained duty to make and enforce ethical laws. But they first and foremost promote themselves so that they might maintain their position. Even benevolent leaders seek their own self-interest. Keep that in mind as you select candidates. That's all I'll say politically. Contrast and compare this with those of God's kingdom. Those whose greatness is found in their selfless service, says Jesus in verse 43. And not service only for a reward, but service in the best interest of others. Look at what our Lord says in verse 44. He uses a word that is very, very important. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Slave of all. I hope your translation uses that word. If not, it's missing the point. Sometimes it's translated bond slave. And it simply refers to someone dedicated solely to the interest of another. In this case, a slave in this time period who could not have any interest of their own because they had to be so completely consumed with the interest of their master. Such a slave was concerned only with that. And Jesus says here, if you desire to be first in the kingdom of heaven, that's the way you need to be. Completely consumed, not only with the desire of your master, but with the concern with the good of those whom the master loves. Well, who is that in the church? Our fellow believers, right? This clearly defines the selfless service Jesus is talking about here. And he gives himself as the supreme example, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of Man. Jesus used that often of himself, that title. We find that back in Daniel chapter 7, and there the the Ancient of Days, God the Father is seated upon the throne and one approaches Him like the Son of Man. And it's to Him that God gives dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that people may serve him. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying, for one, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am that son of man. But even that son of man, when he came into this world, listen. He did not come so that people might serve him. He came to serve us in the sense of giving his life for us that we then in turn might be in the kingdom and serve and serve him. And ultimately serve him for the glory of God the Father. He's the servant who gave all that he should be served as the Christ of God. The ransom he paid was his cup and his baptism. The price paid to free us from the debt of sin. Suffering in death. But as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, we are not free to live as we please. God did not set us free that we might then go about living as we please. That's such a a problem in the church today. Not this church, per se, but in in Christendom, uh, in the evangelical church, in church in general. Oh, I like Jesus. That's great. He saves me from my sin. Everybody likes to know that their sins are forgiven, right? I don't know. I don't think anyone here would raise their hand if I were to ask you to, but I'm not. And ask, do you not like having your sins forgiven? Or would you not like to have your sins forgiven? Everyone would say, yes, I, would, I want my sins forgiven. Why would you ask such a thing? We like that idea. What we don't like is to be told by the one who sets us free that now you are to serve me. Wait, you mean I can't continue on in my self-seeking, self-confident, self-promoting, prideful way? No, Paul says in Romans 6, 18... You're no longer slaves to sin. You've been set free from sin and you have become slaves of righteousness. But here's the wonderful thing about being truly born again. You desire righteousness. You don't like your sin, though you still can sin and still do sin. The truest desire you have is to do what pleases God. And that's why Jesus tells us to watch and pray Lest we enter into temptation. Because your spirit is willing. You do want what God wants. But your flesh is weak. We must serve at the expense. Of our own personal ambitions. And concern ourselves with promoting Christ. For the glory of God. So what does this mean? Well self-seeking and self-confidence and. Self-promotion have no place in God's kingdom, that's for sure. And if you're indeed a Christian, then you must deny yourself. You must humbly follow Jesus Christ on the path of service that leads to God's glory. That's where your path of service leads. If you're on another path, you're on the wrong path. 
the narrow path, the narrow way we are told to follow. That narrow way is for the glory of God. The broad way, said Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Well, many people are on that. It leads to destruction. It leads to hell. The path that we must travel, that we gladly travel if we're children of God, is the narrow path that leads ultimately to the glory of God. And we will be in heaven, as we read in the book of the Revelation, and we'll cast our crowns before the Lord. To Him be the glory. To Him be the power. To Him be the majesty and the might and the dominion forever. Like blind Bartimaeus that we find in that very last passage of chapter 10 beginning in verse 46. We're just blind beggars. Our only hope is for the Father to send the Son our way, that He might pass by, as it were, seeing us in our hopeless condition, call us out with the gospel, open our hearts as if opening blinded eyes, that we may see ourselves godless sinners, Jesus Christ, the only Savior and Lord, and to see Him as the only one worthy to follow. Do you say you're a Christian this morning? Is that the Jesus you're following? A lot of people say, sure, I'm a Christian. Do you follow Jesus? Yes. Which one? Because there are a lot of Jesuses, evidently, in our culture at least. People talk about my Jesus and my God and I want to say, that doesn't sound like the one in Scripture. Because their Jesus and their God saves them from sin, but then lets them live as they please. Tolerates sin. Isn't concerned with holiness. Doesn't care anything about righteousness or obedience to God. No. The Jesus that we must follow is the only Savior and Lord, the biblical Jesus, the Son of God, only begotten, full of grace and truth. We have nothing in which to glory except in God's redeeming grace in Christ. What does Paul say in Galatians 6.14? Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For this reason the Lord redeems His people. Let me read for you Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were 
by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he's raised us up together. He's made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our good works of selfless service are to glorify our Father in heaven. Do you remember what Christ said in Matthew 5? Like a shining city set on a hill, like a lamp placed on the lampstand so that all in the room might see, we must let our light so shine before others that what? We may glorify our Father in heaven. And so Paul the Apostle urges us to have the the same mind as our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and mercy fulfill my joy, says Paul, by being like-minded. Having the same love, bearing, uh, being of one accord and of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God also has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul the Apostle Urges us, have this mind, this mind of Christ in this endeavor of humble service to God, flowing out of a love for God and others. Well, the only path to glory we must travel is to bring glory to God by doing His will. There's no room for self in that. We are to do God's will, whether it's in our own family, in our relationship with our spouse, in our relationship with our children, no matter what, the age, with our grandchildren, 
We bring glory to God by doing His will, whether it's among the saints as we gather every Lord's Day and whenever we gather. And we minister to one another just by being here. By encouraging one another to walk with the Lord, to be humble, to use the gifts of the Spirit that God has given us, to fulfill our service, our ministry, that the gospel may always be on display, not only in our lives, but on our lips. We are to bring glory to God by doing His will wherever we work, in whatever activities we participate in among unbelievers. But that path has nothing to do with self-seeking, self-confidence, or self-promotion. And so I'm going to close by asking the question I asked at the beginning. Is your Christianity about what God should do for you? Or is your Christianity about what you should do for God? Because a heart changed by God is a humble heart. It is a repentant heart. It is a trusting heart. It is a heart that follows Christ doing the work of the kingdom for the glory of the Father. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this good word of yours. The scripture that is the truth, we pray you will sanctify us with it. How we rejoice that your word, Lord, not only is to bring us to salvation, but it's to teach us how to follow Christ, how to do that humbly, how to do that for your glory. Lord, you know every heart here. You know where we are in our walk with you. You know if there are any here who profess Christianity but may not truly be born again, have not truly repented, have not truly believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who do not truly follow him. And you know if we have and if we're struggling with pride, if we're struggling with self-seeking, self-confidence, self-promotion. For we know, Lord, that even those who were yours, as James and John and the other apostles, minus Judas Iscariot, they were those who struggled with these things as well. Help us be honest, Lord, with ourselves, honest with you, honest with one another, confessing our sins to one another as is appropriate, and, Lord, just walking together, in this ministry that you have given us together in your kingdom. We pray the Spirit of God that you will move among us, Lord, awaken hearts, not only for salvation, but for service. And I ask this, Father, in the name of our great and glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is indeed worthy to follow. Amen.